This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Daniel Clark here with the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we interview leading wildlife photographers, conservationists, and scientists to learn more about the awe-inspiring species that we share this fascinating planet with. Guests of the podcast have traveled to the edges of the world to observe, study, photograph, and support wildlife in their natural environment, and as you probably can imagine, now have some of the most exciting, crazy, scary, extreme, and beautiful stories that I have ever heard. Today's guest is Richard Peters, a UK-based wildlife photographer and Nikon ambassador who has received numerous accolades for his work including being named the European Wildlife Photographer of the Year. We cover a lot from the photo that he almost intentionally deleted that went on to win his first award, to the award-winning collection of beautiful images taken from his own backyard of pigeons, badgers, foxes, and other common creatures, to winters in Yellowstone, the puffin colonies of the Skomer Islands, and even his flight home from Slovenia to the UK that was diverted due to a bomb scare. It's a really interesting conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Richard Peters. Well, Rich, thanks so much for being part of the podcast. I'm a huge fan and really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, no, you're very welcome. You just got back from a, a trip to Sri Lanka? Um, I did, yeah. It was, um, it was slightly different for me in that it wasn't a work trip. Well, it was kind of work, kind of pleasure, so a mixture of the two, which is which is quite nice because it was a, a, a bit of a break still because my schedule was quite hectic, especially the first half of this year. So it was nice to have a work trip that was kind of relaxing at the same time. Yeah, what were you doing there for work? Um, so uh, basically scouting out locations to see if there's anywhere that would be worth returning to um, in future. There's lots of leopards and elephants and there's some really cool wildlife in Sri Lanka. So um, it was uh, yeah, it was a bit of a scouting mission really to see if it would be worth returning later. Oh, I didn't know there were elephants in Sri Lanka. There are lots of elephants in Sri Lanka, yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, wow. Is it like kind of similar to the states? Are there certain designated areas where it's kind of protected lands that you could yes. go in and photograph? Yeah, so you get, you get um, kind of like most countries, you've got national parks, um, and that's where the highest concentration of, of wildlife is to be found. Um, so there are quite a few national parks there. Um, but it's very tricky because the terrain is quite bushy, um, so, you know, unlike somewhere like the Masai Mara, for example, where it's nice and open and wide, um, you can't necessarily see animals from half a mile away. So you kind of have to kind of almost stumble across them really. So it makes it quite tricky to, to see them and photograph them. Right. So do you think you're going to eventually do a trip there or lead a trip there? Um, I will probably go back for myself, but, um, it's quite a high risk, um, location in that, um, there's no guarantee, there's no guarantee with any wildlife. Um, uh, if I can find the right situation in which I can find the right location to be based, um, then it, then maybe, but for now, um, I, I need to go back a few more times to really kind of knuckle it down and decide what I want to do. In your work, is it mostly on wildlife guiding side and photographic guiding side, or is it largely independent photographic trips where you're doing work for magazines or on assignment, or is it a hybrid of the both? 
Um, mostly for me, mostly it's workshops um, and guiding that kind of thing. Um, generally, I would say the majority of wildlife photographers these days, their income is generated from teaching and workshops. Um, the days of selling your photos for huge amounts of money are sadly long gone. Uh, there are still a few out there who obviously do assignment work. You know, the National Geographic guys, all amazing photographers, lots of assignment work. Um, but for your average wildlife photographer these days, it's it's workshops and teaching and that kind of thing. Is that mostly because a lot of the equipment's so much more accessible that the, there's more of those photographs available? Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to, you know, want to learn how to take better photos. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, there's a lot of people with, um, an interest in wildlife and an interest in nature, um, who, you know, have a regular job and, and they can't afford to spend time on their own flying off to some random location in the hope they find wildlife. So, you know, for, for someone like that, it's easier for them to book a trip with someone who knows where they're going and it's all prearranged and they know they're going to see some animals. Uh, and get some nice photos and get some tuition and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, for me, it's quite a fun aspect of what I do. Um, I really enjoy it. I like teaching people. It's good. No, I was saying more in the sense that you were saying that the, uh, Nat Geo, the, the days when you could sell one photo for a ton of money are kind of gone. Uh, sure. Yeah. 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 It's more of a supply and demand type of thing. Yeah. I think, um, so uh, I think typically like a, an assignment photographer will have a very specific story they want to cover. Um, and that's very kind of photojournalistic. Um, and that, that in itself is a skill, um, you know, recognizing a story, um, the angles in which to kind of cover it from, from a photographic perspective. That's really kind of where the money is in the, as an assignment photographer. I've never really, my brain doesn't work in a photojournalistic way, sadly, um, which is ironic because I used to work for a news channel for 13 years, <laughs> uh, but my brain doesn't work in that type of way. For me, it's always been creative. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the thing is, is, uh, that kind of photojournalistic approach. Um, and yeah, just, just your average random photo selling to go on a, on a billboard or advertising, um, those types of kind of random potluck sales are, are certainly uh, very few and far between. So it's, yeah, selling, selling photos directly is not a way really to make money these days as a wildlife photographer. So where are you focusing most of your wildlife tours on? Is it across the world? Uh, yeah, I, so um, I do a couple of bits for myself. Um, I do uh, trips with uh, several other photographers and companies um, who are all kind of uh, very well known in the industry. So I kind of I like to team up with people and collaborate because it's um, it's more interesting. It means I get to see different locations. Um, so you know, Africa, uh, America, all over the place. Really, um, it change. I go to Africa all the time, but other locations it changes every year. Uh, but it can be anywhere in the world, essentially. Um, but I like the co collaboration of it. Um, I like to work with other people. Um, it can be quite a lonely, potentially quite a lonely kind of profession. Um, for mm. Because, um, you know, you could, in theory, spend a lot of time sitting on your own in a hide or, you know, in some bushes somewhere with a lens pointing at an animal waiting for it to turn up. Um, so it potentially has, has, has that kind of loneliness to it. So it's, it's nice to collaborate and, and kind of catch up with friends who have similar wavelengths, similar way of thinking. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, especially if there's an elusive animal that you're going after. I'm sure there's a lot of wildlife photographers who are kind of holed up in isolation for extended periods of time. 
Yeah, I mean, you, so you get, you know, you get like the uh, the BBC's natural history documentaries, like Planet Earth, for example. You know, at the end of every episode, you get kind of like the diary uh, section where they show how they filmed a particular sequence, and you can get, you know, one of those guys can sit in a in a hide for thirty days and you know get ten seconds of video footage. I think with the Birds of Paradise a few years back, that was what happened. They spent you know days and days in this hide. And hardly got any footage. They got some cool footage, but the amount of time they spent, you know, waiting for it, yeah, uh, you know, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, you know, there is that potential that you kind of spend a lot of time on your own, and you have to like your own company as well. Um, if you're one of those people that just can't sit there in silence on your own, then you know, wildlife photography is definitely not for you. Oh, geez. I always thought I'd be good at it, but I've never been good at sitting <laughs> alone by myself. I think my thoughts tend to go a little bit crazy after two or three hours. Yeah. I mean, you know, modern technology definitely makes it easier. Um, you know, I've completed every level of Angry Birds. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm an expert at that now because, you know, when you're just sat there with nothing to do, it's, it can be boring and sometimes you have to think of something to pass the time. So, um, you know, modern day technology definitely helps with that kind of thing compared to oh, yeah. photographers that would sit in hides 30 years ago. I mean, you know, lots of respect for them because I would go crazy if I was sat oh there God. for you know, that amount of time. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you used to work at a, a news channel. What were you doing there? Yeah, so I used to do graphics. Um, I used to put the uh, graphics on screen, essentially, make them move around, um, <coughs> excuse me, in time with what the presenter was saying. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like doing, the easiest way to describe it is it was kind of like doing a PowerPoint presentation with me controlling the presentation and someone else reading the presentation. That's the easiest way to describe it. And yeah, I did that for 13 years, um, worked in the design department with all the designers. So I've always had that kind of creative kind of creativity, I guess, uh, built into me. Yeah. And were you always doing photo on the side? Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, I was there for 13 years. I pretty much started getting interested in photography around the same kind of time that I started there. Um, but for the first maybe 10 years or so, uh, photography was purely just a hobby. Um, I was very much a fair weather photographer, so I would only go out at the weekend if it was sunny. Um, mm. you know, sometimes I wouldn't pick my camera up for six months. So it was a very slow process to really, really kind of get into it and find my feet. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of, you know, as and when I had the opportunity, I'd pick the camera up. So it was, it was a slow process to get going for sure. And was wildlife always the the focus of your photography when you got a chance to do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've always had an interest in natural history documentaries, even as a as a, a child growing up. Um, and I grew up in London, but I've always enjoyed or preferred being out in the countryside or you know out in open spaces. Um, so. Yeah, I think it just it just naturally developed. I I had an interest in taking photogra- in photography all of a sudden, and I already had this interest in being outside and and watching natural history documentaries. And so I think it was it was an obvious thing for those two things to come together. I think it was only it was only a matter of time until they would. So, what was your first ever wildlife trip to go out and shoot a specific animal? That's a very good question. Um, so, well, initially when I was kind of still finding my feet and still practicing, mm-hmm. um, I used to go to zoos a lot. So I used to spend a lot of time at zoos just practicing how to use the camera and all that kind of thing. Um, once I was kind of happy with that, I kind of got bored of the fact that my subject was just sitting there and there was no challenge to it. 
So I started going, I used to live near a river, so I used to walk along the river and see if I could photograph herons and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I very quickly realized how much harder it is to photograph a wild animal as opposed to a captive animal. Um, So it was quite a challenge. Um, And then I would say my first actual trip away um, out out of the UK was probably to, it would be to Yellowstone actually, Yellowstone in America. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful place. Yeah. Amazing. That was back in 2010, I think, was it two, it might've been 2011. Um, and that really was kind of a turning point for me as well, because that was the point at which I realized I really enjoyed doing this. I was actually fairly capable. I kind of was, you know, occasionally getting some nice images. Um, I love the travel aspect of it. I love being in Yellowstone. It was, you know, it was amazing. And that, that kind of that time in my life was a real turning point. And when I realized that I wanted to do um, photography more seriously, um, rather than just as a, as a casual hobby. Yeah. And was there a specific photo when you were like, damn, I think I can do this professionally, or was it really just the experience was so fun that you were like, I want to make sure I'm good enough to be able to do this as more of a full-time job. Yeah, I mean, well, there, there was actually an instance. So going going back um, five years beforehand, previously, so but you know, five years before Yellowstone, there was actually a time where um, I took a really nice picture of a lion in a zoo. So just going back to my zoo days, mm-hmm. and it was a really cool picture, and it looked really nice. It was a portrait of a lion, um, and everyone I showed loved it. And I thought at that point initially, I thought, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can, you know, I know what I'm doing. So I treated myself to a four thousand pound lens because, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I thought, you know, yeah, this is easy, I can do this. <laughs> so I spent all this money on a lens um, and continued taking pretty rubbish pictures, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, over those next five years leading up to when I went away, I obviously improved and I got better. Um, and it was whilst I was in Yellowstone that I took a photo which um, won me an award in Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And that was, again, that was one of those kind of real turning points. Um, so, yeah, my, my trip to Yellowstone is definitely um, a very fond memory, um, both not just in terms of the experience and thinking, wow, this is amazing and I love it here and, you know, I want to travel more, but also in realizing that I could actually potentially, you know, do something as a photographer, make it as a photographer. Which photo was it that won Wildlife Photographer of the Year? Um, so uh, sadly, I wish it won. Sadly, it didn't win, but it, um, it was in it was in the mammal behavior category, and it was called Snow Pounce, and it was a red fox leaping in the air to dive down and catch a rodent under the snow. Um, and ironically, it was a picture that at the time of capture, I nearly deleted um, when I took it because uh, I got this whole sequence of this of this fox jumping and. I went back through the pictures as soon as I'd taken them. And uh, the one I thought was the best photo was out of focus because as the fox had leaped, it leaps out of the depth of field of the lens. Mm-hmm. And so I zoomed in and I saw it was completely out of focus and I was really sort of disappointed. And I very nearly just deleted the whole sequence because I thought, well, the best picture <laughs> is off. It's not worth keeping, <laughs> you know. Um, but then, you know, a, a saner head prevailed. And um, I thought, actually, you know what? That was really cool to see. And it was a really nice, um, it's going to be a really nice memory of what I've just witnessed. So I kept right. it. And then a year later, was looking back through my Yellowstone pictures, looked at this sequence of images again and kind of thought, actually, one of the other photos where you can only see the face and the paws and the tail, that's actually really cool and quite quirky. Um, maybe that's maybe that's quite a good photo. And so I entered into the competition and the rest is history. So, Oh, yes, my God. That's very amazing. Nearly, very nearly deleted the photo that was 
kind of like a breakout photo for me. And uh, it's one that people recognize um, as mine and I'm known for. So, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's crazy. I nearly deleted it. Um, I've, I know the one you're talking about. It's a beautiful photo. I could not imagine looking at that and just the delay. I mean, a full year before you're like, wow, this is a, yeah. a noteworthy photo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I, I quite often say to people that, uh, and I'm sure other photographers say it as well, it's really important to look back at your photos a few months after you've taken them because anytime you go away, uh, you know, you might witness an incredible scene and you take some photos and you're so emotionally attached to what you've just seen and witnessed and you've heard it and you can you can smell it, you, you can smell the air, you know, you, you've got all these senses going on and it's amazing and your photos don't necessarily capture that. And so... Um, I often look at my pictures and feel like they haven't done what I've just witnessed justice. And then when mm-hmm. I look at them again a few months later, when those emotions are gone and I can just appreciate the photo as a photo, I then realize actually they're, they're better than I thought. Um, and so it's a very important thing to look back over your old photos because you, you quite often have better images than you realized, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting behavior in general from the Red Fox is the idea that it can sit there and just scan over an expanse of snow, have some idea where a rodent is and pounce on top of it and catch one. Did you see one successfully pounce on a rodent? No, well, that one didn't catch the rodent. Um, so they've got amazing hearing. So they actually listen to them under the snow, which is, you know, it's incredible. Um, and uh, with that particular picture, you know, I will, I will always hold my hands up and say it was just complete luck. Like I could never have anticipated capturing that behavior in that particular particular way uh, with that framing and that composition mm-hmm. um, because we saw this fox hunting way out in a field um, <coughs> excuse me we saw it hunting way out in a field it was coming closer and closer um, we could see it you know occasionally leaping it wasn't catching anything and then as it was getting closer it disappeared and so we waited expecting it to reappear um, maybe you know three or four minutes went past we didn't see it and all of a sudden it reappeared further up the road on like a snowbank because they plow the roads. Um, mm-hmm. so snowbanks are quite high. And by the time we drove up and pulled up next to it, it was already tilting its head at the ground. So we already knew it had heard something under the, under the snow. Right. And he had chance to lift my lens onto the windowsill of the car, frame it in the viewfinder and it leaped. And I just held my finger on the shutter release and just hoped for the best. So, you know, I, <laughs> You know, it was a complete lucky shot. Um, and, you know, often they are the best photos is the ones that you haven't pre-planned and the ones that just happen spontaneously. Um, and, yeah, and that's a very good example of that. Do you ever find some competition on the people that you're on the tours with when you're all taking the photo of the same type of experience and you're finding a way to not make it look like everybody else's? Yeah, looks- Absolutely. I mean, and that's a very good example is, you know, I was the only person that captured that particular um, shot. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just just reacted quick enough. I got lucky. But absolutely, when you've got, you know, as as an example of uh, the Masai Mara, I can have three guests in the Jeep behind me and, you know, I'm sitting next to the driver and we'll find a subject to photograph. And it's my job to position the vehicles so that I can see the best angle for the shot. And once I've got the best angle, I then have to tell the driver to go forward so that the best angle can be seen from the people behind. So I'm looking for the best shot and then giving it to the person behind me, essentially, which, right. uh, which, which can be difficult. In some situations, it's fine because the best angle is quite broad, so it doesn't matter. 
but there are plenty of times all I can see is the back of another vehicle or all I can see is a bush because I've had to move forward and block my own view. Mm -hmm. Um, But those times where you all can take the shot, yes, absolutely, because if you see a unique situation, um, but 10 people take a photo of it, it's not a unique photo. Right. I think that only ever happens once in a lifetime, but if 10 people have got the same photo, it's not a unique photo anymore. And so often you have to think about, you know, maybe do I use a different lens to everyone else, a different focal length? Do I try and blur the motion with a slow shutter speed? You know, what, what can I do that hopefully the other people aren't doing? Um, you know, how can I try and change this situation into something a bit more unique than, than what, how everyone else sees it? So it's definitely a challenge and it keeps you on your toes for sure. It makes you think, I think. When was the first time you went to the Masai Mara? I think it was back in 2014, I believe was my first time there. Yeah. What was drawing you there versus other areas of Africa? Um, well, I'd, I'd always wanted to go, um, you see it on, uh, you know, you see it on so many kind of documentaries and Mm -hmm. I'd always been told it's the place to go for concentration of animals, um, you know, and guaranteed sightings. It's the place to go. And so I just had this real kind of desire and, uh, a friend of mine, a very good photographer called David Lloyd, he, um, he goes out there all the time. So he's, you know, he spends, uh, you know, half a third of the year, half a year out there and, so I went with him on one of his trips initially and loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was, you know, it was incredible. Um, wanted to go back and, uh, you know, fast forward several years and then I now go out there and help him guide his trips out there. So uh, oh, wow. yeah, it's an amazing place. I recommend anyone who's into wildlife and likes wildlife should at least try and go once in their lifetime because it's, it's a phenomenal place. It really is. Is there an experience there that stands out amongst the rest? Oh, good question. Um, it's a tricky one. I mean, for me, I I love so I I love the leopards out there. So the big cats are amazing. Um, the leopards are often quite hard to to spot and find. So um, any encounter with a leopard is memorable. Um, but earlier this year in February, there was one that had two cubs, and so we spent a lot of time trying to see this leopard with two cubs. And I hadn't seen a leopard cub before, so. Uh, when we eventually saw them and found them and I got a nice picture of one of the cubs, that's definitely a highlight because it was a, it was a first for me. So it was a really cool experience. I know that the, the cheetahs are struggling with a really high mortality rate in the cubs. Do you know if that's similar with the leopards? Um, to be completely honest, um, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, uh, with leopards, uh, you find, um, they're a lot more secretive. So, uh, you don't see them in the open as much. Uh, they like to spend a lot of time undercover. So um, a guess, which is probably not always the best thing to do, I would say that it's not so bad as with cheetah because with cheetah, mm-hmm. they're out in the open a lot more. Um, they tend to have a lot more cubs as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not an answer I can sort of say yes or no with any great authority. Have you done the great migration there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll be back there in August this year as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And that, that in itself is an amazing spectacle as well. Seeing all these, you know, tens of thousands of wildebeest still trying to cross the river. Um, that's, that's quite a special experience. The sound of it and, uh, the smell of it and just having it happen right in front of you is again, it's one of those things that you, you can watch it on telly, you can watch it on YouTube, but it's, it's a 10th of experiencing it for yourself. Bringing it back a little bit to the, to your journey specifically, you went to Yellowstone, that switch kind of turned in your mind where you're saying, I want to start doing this full time. Yeah. When were you 
able to say, okay, I want to start leading my own tours. I feel comfortable doing that and, and fully making the leap. Um, well, it's so I worked, uh, cause I'm still working, um, uh, uh, in, for this, um, for this, uh, TV channel, this news channel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I got quite lucky. So, um, I knew I was getting to the point where I wanted to do more with my photography, but having a full-time job was getting in the way or a uh, regular job, should I say. Um, it was shift work based. So I was quite fortunate in that even though it was a full-time job, I had a lot of time off work. So that enabled me to kind of do photography on the side more than your average person. Um, mm-hmm. So I could help people do, you know, uh, help with trips. Um, and I got lucky because the company I worked for, <coughs> excuse me, had a reshuffle as all these big corporate companies do these days. Right. And, <coughs> excuse me, I was offered the opportunity of reapplying for my job or taking redundancy. And so I took redundancy with kind of, you know, open arms. I couldn't wait because <laughs> right. that, that was, it was a scary decision to make because you're going from a guaranteed regular income, uh, monthly income to the unknown, essentially. Um, I'd already built a, a bit of a, I hate using the phrase, but I built a bit of a name for myself. So people were kind of uh, familiar of, of who I was to an extent. Um, and I just kind of thought, I'm going to regret it if I don't try. So I, yeah, I left and um, was really worried. And I remember, I remember the first day after I was officially gone from my previous work, I woke up the following morning and I just thought, what have I done? Oh dear, <laughs> I'm self-sufficient. Um, mm, okay, this is interesting. Um, and it was a weird, it was a weird feeling and a weird sensation. And you know, my friends, uh, you know, everyone said, "Look, it'll be fine. You know, you'll make it. Don't worry, it'll be fine." Um, but I had self-doubt. I think it's, and I think it's important to kind of, you know, you don't want to be too confident. You want to be, over, you don't want to be overconfident in your ability and and the way you think people see you. And so, you know, for me, I had some doubt. For everyone else, they said, "No, it'll be fine." And, and then, yeah, I just teamed up with, uh, you know, with my friend, David Lloyd. Um, there's another company called nature's images who I do a lot of work for. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so it kind of went from there and I haven't looked back. Wow. That's amazing. I actually had a similar experience where, um, a company I was working for right before I jumped off to work full time on my stuff. Uh, they were kind of downsizing a little bit. Yeah. And I knew that we were, I was probably like three or four months out from them kind of making that decision on, on the redundancies or the severance packages and stuff like that. And I, I was just, I kept wondering if I should just hang on a little bit and try and uh, hang out and be the worst possible employee so I could get a severance package. And I started seeing like, should I just be rude on all of these phone calls and hope that I, uh, can pull it off, but I ended up deciding just to kind of jump ship a little bit earlier. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, I was lucky in that everybody was offered the same opportunity, reapply or, or take, you know, take, take volunteer. Yeah. Well, well redundancy so, is a big difference than what I was going for. I was going more for sheer severance because they didn't want to deal with me anymore. <laughs> uh, so one of my favorite photos of yours is, uh, it's like a, a straight on, almost like macro image of a brown bear in Slovenia. Yes. Uh, straight on. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, so that particular photo was, um, that was, that was a commissioned image actually for a magazine in the UK. <coughs> Excuse me. So 
uh, that year, Nikon was celebrating a hundred uh, hundred year anniversary, and so this particular magazine was doing a special edition cover where they uh, commissioned four different photographers to take a cover shot, and uh, each photographer had to use a specific camera. So I had to use the D five hundred, and so they were like, "Right, we want we want a cover shot." So there's your brief cover shot, please. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and so I had to kind of think, right, where, where can I go? Where can I go to try and get an interesting picture? Because I don't want just a very boring generic picture of, you know, like a bird on a stick, a nice clean background. Um, you know, I wanted to try and get something that was a bit more interesting and something that you would see on the, on the magazine shelf and it would make you want to pick the magazine up. And, um, so there, uh, there's a company in Slovenia, a very nice guy runs a Slovenia um, bear hide company. And I said to him, look, can I come out? Can I use your hides? I'd like to try and get this picture for a cover photo. And um, he was like, yeah, cool. Yeah, you know, come out and check out the bears. So I did. I uh, spent three or f- I think four days there. And um, I knew that I wanted like a, I knew I wanted a picture that was like a full face portrait because mm-hmm. I knew that would be what would really kind of draw you in. And it was quite tricky to take actually. So, uh, you know, I spent, spent several days in these hides. Um, and Sorry, what's a, what's a hide? A uh, blind, a uh, blind. So like, uh, oh, 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 oh. Uh, a little, a little, a little hut basically. Got it. Sorry. Um, yeah. So hide. Yeah, hide blinds. I, think I was thinking. I, sometimes you think of hides as um, like skin, and I was like, "Oh God, this guy have like a bear <laughs> farm or something like that." No, no. It was, uh, yeah. So it was a hide. It's like a blind. It's like a a little wooden. It was a, basically it was a little wooden box essentially. Got it. Um, on stilts because because the, the I was on a mountainside, so to be level with where the bears will be, it was up on stilts kind of thing. Does Slovenia have a large? Brown bear population. They, yeah, they have a lot of bears there. Um, and this particular company, uh, they do a very good job because they're trying to, without getting too into it, they try to, they want to educate the hunters in the area that, you know, bears aren't just worth shooting. You can actually, you know, there, there can be money from educating people and having people mm-hmm. come and take photos of them. Um, so they uh, they put kind of corn and uh, well, apples is the main thing they put out to kind of try and get the bears away from the hunting areas, really. Um, and kind of get them into these, you know, these more photogenic locations so that mm-hmm. tourists can come and take photos and just watch them and, um, and kind of, you know, educate the people that live there that, you know, you don't, That's just, awesome. you don't just have to kill them. Right. Um, so yeah, so I, I spent a few days in this hide and I had a particular image. I want to, you know, I want a real close up. And, uh, again, it was just, it, it came down to the wire because on the last day, uh, I hadn't managed to get the image I wanted. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had this bear in front of me. It was too far away. Uh, I put my teleconverter on because it was quite far away. And it was there for, you know, a good half an hour or so. And it, it just, it then just started walking towards my hide. So I think what it was actually doing was leaving because they always tend to come up the hill to, to where I was. And then when they leave, they would often go back down the hill and behind my hide, uh, blind. And, um, uh, it, and it walked, it just walked towards the hide. And so I was having to, tilt my lens down because I was up high and it was walking down lower. So I was having to tilt my lens down and down and it just, it didn't look at me, but it just kind of looked up and was looking around because there was noises in the forest and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. got a burst of three photos and one of them sharp and the other two were a bit soft because it was moving the whole time. Right. Uh, 
So it was, it was uh, again, it wasn't a lucky shot in the sense I'd pre-planned for it and I knew what I wanted, um, but I came very close to not getting the image that I kind of wanted. Um, and so, yeah, and so I got, got the shot and the, the magazine were happy with it and they, you know, they put it on their cover and it was cool. So you beat out those three other people? Well, no, so they did a limited edition cover. So there was four different covers, essentially. Mm. So they, they Each photographer had their own cover shot. And so there were four versions of that magazine that month. Um, and each image had, you know, they had one cover with mine. They had another, they did another one with another picture, another one, another picture. So it was four different images and four different editions of the same magazine, basically. What was the story on? It was just on Nikon 100-year anniversary. So they were celebrating uh, they were celebrating that. And so that's why each photographer had to use a specific camera. And we had to you know, talk a little bit about the camera and the picture and that kind of thing. So it was, um, yeah, it was to celebrate that. Have you always shot on Nikon? Yep, the whole time. Um, I. Uh, you got I, me concerned now. I said Nikon my entire life, and now I'm like, am I supposed to say Nikon? Well, so so English people say Nikon. Um, okay. Americans say Nikon. Uh, the actual correct pronunciation is Nikon. Um, okay. So that apparently is the correct pronunciation. Um, so most people say it wrong, um, but I, you know. English. It just sounds good. Nikon sounds yeah, good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I didn't <laughs> keep going on and sounding like a doofus no, the whole time. It's one of those words that everyone, you know, everyone says it the way they want to say it. Um, but Nikon <laughs> is the, uh, apparently the correct pronunciation. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've always used them. Um, I had a film camera very, very briefly <clears throat> um, back, back uh, around 2000-ish. Um, and a friend of mine, so at the time I didn't know any photographers and my friend's dad was kind of into photography. And so he used Nikon, Nikon, Nikon. Uh, <laughs> them. And I just thought, well, if I get one, I can borrow his lenses because he's got some quite nice lenses. And so that was, that was, you know, that was it really. Um, I did go into a shop and I picked up a couple of other brands. I liked the way that this particular camera fit in my hand. I liked the ergonomics. Um, I knew someone that had the same brand. So that was it. Um, I've always used them ever since then. And when did you become an ambassador for them? Did they reach out or yeah, was so, it after a while? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so again, yeah, that was, that was one of those things that was uh, just good timing. Uh, so I left my... Uh, my job in in uh, in the media industry, and so I left I left that job knowing that I was about to be announced as the European Wildlife Photographer of the Year because I I knew I'd just won the competition. So um, was that which photo was that for? That was the shadow of the fox on a wall. Oh, that shot's amazing! Yeah, thank thank you. Um, so I knew already because the the competition had told me in advance. I knew that I'd won that. Um, I knew that the same image had won the urban category of wildlife photographer of the year. So I knew these two big announcement, announcements were about to be made and they coincided with me going full time. And so, so that was good. So that happened. And then I, uh, I'd already done a talk for Nikon at a show in the UK called the Bird Fair, which is mm -hmm. quite a good show. And so in the summer, I'd already done a talk for them. So I'd already kind of started to get, get to know the team. And I'd done some other bits and pieces with them. So I already had quite a good relationship and, you know, I got on quite well with them. And then, so I left, I left my previous job, 
these awards were announced, um, they then Nikon then asked me to do a talk for them in the, in the March, so three months later, at another show called the Photography Show, which is a huge show in Birmingham every year. And so I did my talk there for them. And then two weeks later, they called me into their offices and they just asked, you know, would you like to be an ambassador? And it was the quickest yes I think I've ever, ever given. <laughs> so bringing it back to that brown bear in Slovenia, we had mentioned just kind of in our conversations before the podcast that you had had a scary moment on an airplane in Slovenia. Was that on the same trip? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so on my way back from Slovenia, um, it's only a, I think it was a two hour flight, less than two hours. We were kind of, I don't know, maybe halfway and yeah, that's right. So the, the plane just suddenly banked left, which is quite unusual because normally planes, you know, you just go in a straight line. Planes don't just suddenly bank left. Right. So we banked left. Um, and you know, I thought that's a bit weird. And then the pilot came over and uh, over the, um, uh, intercom and said, you know, you may have noticed that we have just changed course. Um, we've been asked to divert for operational reasons, and that's all they said basically. Uh, but what was weird was usually when you come in, when you land in a plane, normally it takes quite a long time to come down from altitude. So you know the landing procedure is you know it's quite a long time. Sure. Um, you know, thirty thousand feet down to the ground takes a while, and but but here within you know ten minutes of saying we've changed course, we have to land, we were on the ground, which in itself was quite weird because we came down very quickly. Yeah. Was it, did it hurt your ears? Or was it like, it, could you notice it differently than normal? No, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a sudden drop, but it was very obvious. We were descending quicker than you At it rapidly. Yeah. 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 Um, were you nervous at this point? Not at that point, because I just assumed, you know, the, the cabin crew were all very calm and, you know, they were acting like nothing weird was going on. And, mm -hmm. and um, so there was no, there was no reason to think anything bad was happening. Right. So we diverted, we landed, and when we landed, that's when it started to kind of think, okay, something weird's going on here because we, so I was on a window seat and as the plane taxied and was turning, um, I could see from the window seat that as we were kind of, I was on the left of the plane and as we turned, as the plane was turning left taxiing, I could see it was being led by a police car. And so, um, obviously at that point I thought, okay, something, something weird's happening here. Mm -hmm. We taxied for ages and we eventually taxied out into the middle of nowhere. So we were nowhere near the airport. There was just fields and trees all around us. Where, so, where did you land? Sorry. Did, oh, sorry. Did we landed I... in Cologne. Okay. Um, so we were literally in the middle of, you know, we landed at the airport, but were taxied out to the middle of nowhere essentially. And so it was very obvious at that point, something was a bit strange. Um, then a load of armed police started pulling up outside the, outside the plane, um, which, you know, but then it was like, okay, something, something not right is happening now. Right. And, uh, the, the cabin crew was still very calm and the, the pilot would occasionally come over the, the tunnel and say, you know, um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, we're, there's still, you know, there's a, there's an issue, but they wouldn't say what they were just kind of, you know, very calm, but just saying there's a, there's a security issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, and so we sat there for a while, probably 20 minutes on the grounds, all these armed police outside. Um, and and I, at one point I was a bit worried, but then it sort of started to get to the point where you sort of think, well, it can't be too serious because the police were all just kind of standing around and chatting. So they were armed, but they didn't look like they were primed and ready for action. Right. Um, the pilot kind of said, oh, we're just waiting for stairs because we need the police to come on board to uh, remove a security issue. 
Um, you know, so you just kind of think at that point, well, the fact we're waiting for stairs to turn up and they've told us they're coming on board, it can't be anything too urgent. Um, so eventually they, they boarded, they led two guys off. Um, they then, the pilot then came over again and said, you know, the police have, have told us that we need to evacuate the plane as quick as possible. But because we're so far away, the quickest way from the airport, the quickest way to do that rather than wait for more stairs is to use the emergency slides. So we all had to slide down off the plane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I spent a very boring 12 hours in quarantine at the airport because we had to leave all, the, all our belongings behind, didn't have passports. And so we spent a very long time in quarantine, um, 12 hours or so. Um, and then eventually got taken to hotels at like five o'clock in the morning uh, we landed at six o'clock in the evening and then at five in the morning we were then taken to hotels and it transpired eventually that what had essentially happened was they there was some suspicion that the guys that they took off the plane had been acting weird and mentioned the word bomb and someone overheard it and so nothing eventually it was a false alarm but they just can't be you know airlines have to be they have to take things seriously so yeah. Oh, so it was so, like another passenger overheard these another two sketchy guys that, talking yeah. about a bomb and they... But, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you kind of think, well, if you, you know, if you're up to no good on a plane and you were discussing that type of thing, you would, you know, you wouldn't use that word. You'd use a different word. So by almost by default, I kind of feel like if you hear that word being used, it's because it's not serious. Um, right. But, you know, airlines, airlines have to, you know, they have to do what they do. So Yeah, better safe than sorry. I would yeah, rather get exactly. down to. Um, yeah. And, you know, but the frustrating thing was I left, I left all my belongings behind. Um, so my bag and my coat. And at five in the morning when we were allowed to collect them, they've moved them all to this section of the airport. And we all went to collect our belongings. I forgot that I had my coat with me. So I left it behind and went to the hotel with my bag. And my coat had a load of camera equipment in the pockets. And, oh, God. Uh, and I never saw it again. That, that was it. Really? Yeah, never saw it again. So <laughs> At least the memory card with that cover photo wasn't in there. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is the thing. So when I travel, typically I load all my images onto my laptop um, in Lightroom. And then I have two separate external drives that I back up my images to. And I usually put one external hard drive in my suitcase um, I put one external hard drive, I put in a pocket that's on me and then I have my laptop in my hand luggage. So I have three copies of all my photos. Um, on this particular trip, I left everything in my hand luggage for some reason. It was the first time I've ever done it. And so I was panicking because initially they were saying, um, you know, you might not get your bags back for three or four days. Um, the deadline for submission for the magazine was the following day. So <laughs> there was a moment of like, uh oh, this could be a problem. But, you know, it all, it all came to be good in the end. Yeah, geez, that's how it, you always hear those horror stories of people who are really smart about redundancy in terms of backing up their data, but yeah. keep it all in one spot. I heard I was on a photo shoot in LA recently, and uh, one of the women I was working with, she had a friend who spent, I want to say, three to six months capturing snowboarders on assignment all throughout the Alps for the entire winter and backed it up on four different drives. So just was like crazy safe about yeah. it, but then kept them all in, a, in, a, in, a, in one bag that was broken into in San Francisco and just lost everything. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. How yeah. was the slide off of the plane? Was that fun? Uh, it, it actually was quite good fun. Um, I kind, of, I kind of think I'm probably one of the few people who has been down the emergency slide of an airplane that isn't traumatized for life because usually <laughs> you go down them because, you know, the plane has fallen out of the sky or, you know, whereas right. 
ours was a little bit more kind of relaxed. Um, <laughs> so it's definitely an experience that I won't forget. Yeah. And so then you went from there back to the UK. Yeah. So hotel, hotel overnight. Um, and then they put a flight cause where we landed, um, they don't, uh, it was easy jet and they don't normally fly to that airport. So they brought a special plane over for us and you know, all that. Oh, thing. And cool. then I got interviewed by the BBC when I landed back in the UK cause they'd heard what was going on. And so I was on telly doing an interview. It's all very, very weird. It was a very weird experience. Did you plug your work during there? That's what I would have done. <laughs> it was very scary, but but go to Richard Peters' photos. Yeah, I need, whenever I need a you T-shirt with my uh, with my website address on for those sorts of occasions. Yeah, <laughs> a piece of your work that I've always really admired is your ability to find beauty in the wildlife within your own urban surrounding. Yeah, when did that? Was that something that kind of came from a passion, or were you just bored that you couldn't do photography all the time because? I think for most people, they look at like a raccoon in their backyard and they're like, oh God, get out of there. Whereas you've created some beautiful images of badgers and foxes um, right outside your home. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So part, part of that, that whole project, which I kind of coined, uh, called Bat Garden Safari, that was, you know, it's going back three years now and it kind of is crazy that it was three years ago. Um, and, and, you know, people still really connect with it, which is really nice. And I think it's because it's all about showing that you don't have to travel to take interesting wildlife photos. Um, and that really was what I wanted to demonstrate to people. So I've had people say to me in the past, Oh, you know, your photos are nice, but you know, of course they are. You get to go to Africa, you get to go here, you get to go there, you know, you get to take pictures of all these cool animals. And I just wanted to show that the subject isn't the most important thing in the photo. If the photo is good, it doesn't matter what is in that photo. And, and the challenge of photographing animals in your garden kind of seemed like the best way of doing that because virtually everyone has access, virtually everyone has a garden. And if they don't, they have access to somewhere local that's out, whether it's a park or, um, and so I just wanted to show that no, you know, wildlife photography isn't about traveling. It's about just capturing interesting photos, um, and maybe trying to show an animal in a different way or, you know, um, you know, use an interesting lighting technique. You know, there's lots of things you can do to make boring subjects interesting. And so, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Well, I think we always live in this grass is always greener type perspective yeah. too, where I always use the example where if squirrels were as rare as koalas and you didn't see them every day and they were, you would look at one and be like, oh my God, how amazing is that? Yeah. And it's the, I, the same thing. I even go back and I wonder <laughs> if there's people in Africa who see lions and and leopards every day. I wonder if they ever look at a photo of like a raccoon or a badger and are like, oh my God, that's amazing. So I think it's really cool to get people to appreciate what's around them because a lot of times you just naturally default to not finding interest in things just because you see them every day, whereas they might be just as beautiful as something that you have to travel 3000 miles to see. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a good example of that actually. Um, a few years ago, I think maybe three years or so, um, there was a common robin was found or spotted in somewhere somewhere in Japan. I think it was. I think it was Japan. And they don't they don't you don't see them over there. That's not uh, that's not where where robins tend to go. And so right. because one had found its way to this this place in Japan, um, I'm sure it was Japan. 
there's a photo of like 400 photographers all lined up trying to take a picture of it. <laughs> you know, I just look in my garden and there's three robins jumping around on the lawn. Right. So, you know, I, I, I quite often say that yeah, all wildlife is exotic to someone. Um, and it's important to remember that because you do get used to seeing the same things over and over again. And so when you see something and it becomes familiar, you kind of forget that it's still quite an interesting animal or it's quite, you know, it's quite cool. There's, it's very easy to forget that and to think that you can only take interesting images of animals that you don't see every day, but that's rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for people who are aspiring to do what you do, it's an easy excuse for people to have to say, Oh, well I could do the same thing Rich does if only I could afford to get out to Africa all the time or something like that. And it's like, no, he took a beautiful photo or one of your, the photo that one photographer of the year, the shadow, it's basically a shadow of a Fox cast against a brick wall where that, that was close by, I would assume. Right. That that was in my back garden. So yeah, that was, that was like, that was five feet from the back, from the back kitchen door. So um, and, and, uh, last year I had a, a picture awarded in again, in European wildlife photography of a pigeon. And that was also taken in my garden. So, you know, it's, it's been a really good project to show, to say to people, you know, you can get inspiration anywhere. Uh, my garden isn't even very big, you know, so, um, yeah, I was going to say, unless you have some special magical garden that you're not telling people about yeah no i mean you know you just don't know what's what you don't know what animals are in the local area until you really start looking and and you know like i say the project was a few years ago now but it's still it always just feels current people are still always you know asking me to do talks about it uh, people are always referencing the photos um and i think it's because it is just so accessible because it's you know anyone can essentially do the same thing and i think that's that's why it connects to people and that really is why i did it in the first place yeah i mean even in los angeles i went home the other night in within the stretch of 10 minutes i saw a possum family uh two raccoons that actually i think might have been rabid because they wouldn't leave me alone and then I was pulling into my driveway and literally a block from my house, I saw two massive coyotes. Oh, I mean, wow. yeah, like probably had to be four feet tall. Big. I mean, I don't know how to put them into perspective, but just huge coyotes. And I was like, oh my God, I live in one of the most urban areas you can in America. Yeah. And I just saw three fascinating animals that I would have loved to photograph. Well, um, I mean... That it sounds to me like I need to come visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, coyotes are crazy. Coyotes are one of the most adaptive species we have. They say that in downtown LA, which is pure urban skyscrapers and everything, that there's a very healthy blossoming coyote population that just lives in abandoned lots and comes in and picks off rodents in the evenings. Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's the thing is wildlife does adapt. Um, you know, especially in the UK, we're a very small island and you know, cities and towns are only getting bigger and bigger. So we're encroaching more and more on um, on the countryside and wildlife is forced to adapt. And so, you know, it's a really, I think it's really important to kind of embrace um, embrace wildlife and, and allow it to kind of share your, your, um, your garden space, you know, because there's a really big culture in the UK of trying to entice wildlife into the garden. You know, garden centres are full of bird feeders and, and mm-hmm. seeds, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and it's, and it's a really important thing to do for us in the UK because, you know, we, we are a small island and we are getting bigger and bigger. So, 
you know, at some point, something has to give. And so, you know, giving wildlife as much a chance as you can by getting it into your garden and, you know, welcoming it in and not shooing it away. A lot of people don't like foxes, you know, for foxes in the garden, they'll chase it out. You know, that's mm-hmm. not the right thing to do. You know, they were there first. And so it's important. It's an important thing to do, I think, for sure. Have you felt, uh, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think that through my conversations with a lot of wildlife photographers, you see people come at the craft from a lot of different angles. There's a lot of people who have always just been obsessed with hiking in the natural world and going to the most extreme areas of the world and just happen to bring a camera with them. Then you find the folks who are really passionate about conservation and protecting species and doing that. You find the photojournalism folks. From your perspective, at least in my conversation with you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you've taken it from a much more creative angle where your ability to, just hearing you talk about the way that you angles and the camera gear you're using, the apertures, the focal lengths, Lightroom, it seems to be more of an ex- a creative focus. Do you feel from that perspective, do you still feel a desire to rope in conservation into that piece of it? Or where, where do you see the intersection of your work in conservation, if it even exists? Because I, I don't necessarily think that it has to. I just, I think it's interesting coming from your perspective versus a lot of the other people that I talk to. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I've always said that, that my approach to wildlife um, photography is it's definitely slightly selfish in that I've always done it from a, it has been from a creative perspective. Um, you know, I loved art and design at school. That was all I was interested in. You know, I hated maths. I hated English. I've never been academic. I've always been creative. And so, you know, my, you know, my first reason for, for photography, for doing photography is because I enjoy creating and I like to stimulate my brain and, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of and so it's, you know, it is kind of selfish in that way because I do it for me. You know, I'm taking photos because I want to take photos. Um, if my images can be used in ways that um, help with conservation, then all the better. You know, I'm certainly all for that. Absolutely. 100 uh, percent. So there's there's um, a book series called Remembering Wildlife, um, which um yeah, Margot Raggett's been on the on the That's podcast. Right. Yeah, so uh, she's a friend of mine, and uh, she she you know has this great series of books, and so I contributed to the first two um, elephants and uh, rhinos. Uh, sorry, not rhinos. Ele- uh, yeah, elephants and rhinos, and um, you know, so if my images can be used in some way to help that kind of thing, then you know, I'm I'm always willing to do that without you know without doubt. And if someone were to ask me to do something specifically for some kind of um, uh, charity event or, you know, whatever it might be. Absolutely. I will always, always want to do that. Um, But yes, ultimately I do take photos rather selfishly because I like to create things um, and everything else is a byproduct of that essentially. Yeah. And and for those listening who haven't listened to Margot's podcast, the Remembering Wildlife series is an amazing collection of images from wildlife photographers around the world that a hundred percent of all proceeds raised go to help elephants in one case, rhinos in the other. And then remember and great apes just came out too. So definitely get those books. They're amazing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I think that's awesome. I think any way that is helpful is, I mean, cause, cause I had this conversation with a lot of folks, which is Sometimes when you think of wildlife photography strictly from a conservation standpoint, 
there sometimes becomes this doom and gloom story that's told that they can almost turn people off to a certain perspective where it's super important. And I, to see starving animals or that whale that just popped up in the news a few weeks ago, that was covered in plastic. It's awful and sad and people need to um, be aware of it to, to help want to make an impact. But I think work that you do as well, which is capturing animals in such a beautiful, stylistic, creative way, Mm-hmm. helps people gain an appreciation to even care that that stuff's happening in the yeah. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a- anyone who who is taking wildlife photos um, that are, are capturing people's imagination, regardless of the reason they've taken it, if it's getting people's attention, it can only help for sure. Um, you know, it, all it takes is one photo to make someone think, oh, that's really cool. I want to find out more about that animal or, or whatever. And, you know, they might start researching stuff and finding out that particular animal is in crisis and then they want to help, you know, you just mm-hmm. never know who is going to see your photos. And so, you know, anyone who is sharing photos of wildlife is is hopefully, um, or I believe is definitely helping in some way, shape or form. Do you have a particular favorite animal to photograph? I get asked this question a lot and I always struggle to give a definitive answer. Um, I, I prefer mammals to birds. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I find mammals are more expressive and, um, just more generally more interesting looking. Um, I would say that the, the only, the only animal I can think of to come close to answering that is leopards. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it is the one animal I always like to photograph, but leopards would be close to one of the favorites for sure. And would you, say Africa is your favorite location or is that separate? Um, I, I really, I love Africa. Um, it's one of those places that once you've been once, it's very hard. I, I don't know anyone that's been once and then is happy with it and could, you know, oh, I could happily never go again. Everyone wants to go back because it is, it is phenomenal. And I do love being there 100%. Uh, the other location that I completely fell in love with is Yellowstone. So I've been twice. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it earlier. Um, I've been twice and, I just love it there. I'm starting to realize I like colder climates more than I thought I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, the snow covered landscape there is just, it's phenomenal. It really is. It's just, it's very, obviously, you know, it's the complete contrast to the Masai Mara. Right, right. You know, it's a, they're as different as they can get, but they each have their own charm. Um, and, and yeah, both of those locations, I could, you know, I, I wouldn't say no at any opportunity to go to either of them. Yellowstone's crazy too, because you could, in a car, drive for days and not see everything. It's just one of the large, I think it's a million acres or something like that. Oh, it's, but it's, it's huge. It's, I mean, we, we, uh, I was there, uh, with a friend of mine, he was helping me out back in November last year. So, uh, I was, um, on a commission from Nikon to shoot with the the new 180 to 400 lens that's just come out. Oh, cool! So, so I took it there to take some photos with it. So I was uh, very fortunate, and I was the first wildlife photographer in the world to be given it to shoot with. So it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, pre-production. Yeah, that already a cool 12 Gs. But it was very yeah. It's, yeah, it's that's it. It's not the cheapest lens, <laughs> uh, but you know, phenomenal lens. Um, and so. You know, we spent a week in Yellowstone driving around. I think we did like two or three thousand miles in a week driving, just driving around. Um, wow. And, you know, one morning we drove down to Grand Tetons um, from the top of Yellowstone. We drove for three and a half hours, didn't see a single car. Uh, you know, absolutely beautiful. It was just amazing. I love it there. I really do. 
Yeah, that time too. So I, I've only been once, but I went end of April, I think early May. Yeah. Which was perfect because it was crazy. You'd wake up in the morning and you'd drive in and it would still be snow everywhere. And then on your way out, like three or four hours later, it was completely green and lush and beautiful. And, but it was kind of right at the precipice of when I think May, June is when a lot of the summer vacationers start coming out because it's a lot nicer. I would see like one car every 30 minutes or something like that. Yeah. So or there, there'd be a pile up and you'd be like, oh, they must be looking at something <laughs> specifically over something. here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was kind of the similar. So we were there in the crossover, the, the shoulder season between summer and winter. Uh, so the same thing. A lot of, a lot of businesses are closed down because they were switching over to the sort of mm-hmm. winter mode. And, you know, the first three days it was clear blue skies it was lots of brown grass everywhere and it kind of looked, it looked like summer really. And it was a bit disappointing because I specifically was going to try and get some wintry shots. And then the second half of the trip, the snowstorm came through and everything was covered in snow. So it kind of all came good in the end. But um, yeah, because it was that shoulder season, same thing as when you were there, uh, nowhere near as many tourists as you would get either in summer or as in winter. So The only problem with the winter is you don't get to see the grizzlies. Well, we got very lucky because we saw a grizzly bear with a cub. Um, really yeah on on the road in a, in a snowstorm um, and we were the only car there for about the first 15 minutes so we and uh, so supposedly we spoke to a few people afterwards at the visitor center the rangers and they said that that's probably the last time that bear will be seen for the winter because it was probably on its way to hibernate so we got very lucky um so yeah that was you know that was phenomenal you know grizzly bear with a cub in the snow falling snow you know, oh my possibly, god yeah it was amazing on the road? Yeah, so it was walking along the road because it's easier than walking kind of, you know, on the on the rocks and stuff. So it was just walking yeah. down the road and it was walking away from us. Um, and, you know, we so we wanted to get in front of it because we wanted to take photos of it. But obviously at the same time, we don't want to scare it. So, we you know, we spent the first five minutes practically matching their speed from a distance to very slowly come towards it. And eventually they kind of went up onto the, off the road onto, onto the hillside so we could drive past and we drove way down the road and we waited for them to basically walk back towards us, which they eventually did. Um, and then, you know, got some photos of them as they came back down the road towards us. Where, were you in Lamar Valley? Uh, it was just outside of Lamar. Yeah, just outside. So we had actually just, so we'd just come from Lamar and we had just seen um, the wolves, the wolf pack there um, cross the road just ahead of us so we're already on a high from having seen that we didn't yeah. get pictures. it was too hard to photo you know you couldn't it wasn't it wasn't a photogenic um opportunity but we were like wow amazing you know we've had these wolves cross in front of us so we're already on a high from that driving back out and then we see a grizzly bear with a cub um you know it was just it was one of those one of those days that i won't forget in a hurry yeah that was a very similar experience to us i saw a black wolf i mean the guy who showed it to me had a scope. It had to be like a mile away mowing on an elk carcass. Yeah. And we were driving out and it was just at the end of winter. So they must've just come out of hibernation, but we saw four grizzlies way out and that that's a top three animal for me. So there was one of the most, I just sat there for hours staring. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. But I I mean, I I wasn't nearly as close as it sounds like you were. Unfortunately. (laughs) No, but just to see them is, is, is amazing. I mean, the landscape there is, you know, stunning. So 
just to see these animals, whether it's through a lens, you know, half a mile away or up close with your own eyes, just you know, just to see them, you know, is it's amazing. It really is. Did you see did you happen to see last week there was an article that somebody shot a wolf in the Yellowstone just outside of Yellowstone in Montana, but it wasn't actually a wolf and they don't know what it was? Oh no, I haven't, I haven't Yeah, no. it's a really weird thing where it, like if you shoot if you looked at it, I mean it's a really sad story that somebody shot it, but yeah. It's uh, it looks just like a black wolf, but it snouts a lot longer. Its teeth aren't the same as a wolf. It has longer paws than it would have, and nobody knows what it is yet. So Even like, like some hybrids of some two, you know, a wolf and a, and a domestic dog or something. Like weird yeah, ones. that's what they're thinking. It's either that or like I don't know if wolves and coyotes can crossbreed. Yeah. Probably not. Maybe no, I don't know. That wouldn't make sense. That might make me sound really stupid on here. But <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but somebody shot the the one and only, which is, I was actually talking to, I forget what podcast it was on, but I never knew that polar bears and, grizz, or, and grizzly bears have uh, made it in the wild too. Have you ever heard of that? It's called the pizzly bear. I, yeah, I have heard something about that. Yeah. And yeah. the only one that um, she had ever seen was shot by somebody too. So it's so annoying. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. But anyways, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, your trips to go see the puffins. Cause those have always been an animal that I think is very Instagram famous because of just how beautiful they are. Um, where are you going to see those and what's, are, are they hard to find? What's the experience like? So we go to an island those? called Skoma, Skoma Island, which is off the coast of Wales. And, uh, it's it's a huge puffing colony, so you they're they're they're, they're sort of May June July is their season. Um, so uh, yeah, we always do a workshop out there because everyone who sees a puffin just loves them. They're they're tiny little things; they're not very tall, uh, and they're just they're just you know I'm I'm more into mammals than birds as I, as I said before, but mm-hmm. they're so much fun. They've got great little characters, um, and you know we we stay on the island for a few days, so we're there for sunset, we're there for sunrise. Um, whereas the day trippers have to go home before you know before the light gets good, and in the evenings when they all really come in from the sea, so you get a lot more of them in the evening, and you just sit on the path and they just run around you. They'll jump on your camera bag. Um, really? So yeah, they you know they they have no fear of people at all, and um, you, they've just got such great personalities. I watched one recently, so they live in the ground in burrows and I watched one land and there were four or five burrow entrances surrounding it. And it kind of looked at them all, turned round, did a poo down one of them and then ran off <laughs> its own one. Like it, it's, it, it's, so, you know, it's so funny to just watch the way they behave. You know, it's That's obviously, super you know, funny. It doesn't get on very well with its neighbor. So it's used its entrance as a toilet and then run away. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, so much fun. They're really good, really good fun to photograph. All right, is Skoma Island inhabited? Uh, no, so there's there's a warden that lives on there, and there are uh, there are people that live on there that work for the for the trust. Um, but there's no there's no houses, no residential um, uh, houses on there. So you either go over as a day trip on the on the one of the boats, or you uh, book a room in the accommodation. So they've got like a farmhouse, and it. Uh, sleep 16 people so oh. we usually take the whole place over for a couple of days and then do like a you know like a, a residential workshop for two or three nights what uh, other animals are over there that you can get 
photos of? Uh, so mostly seabirds. So it's it's a seabird sea colonies really. Um, so you get razorbills and shags and um, awesome. that kind of thing. And uh, there's there's rabbits there, and there's uh, uh, Manx Shearwater is the other big attraction. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got one of the largest Manx Shearwater colonies, um, I think there. So like hundreds of thousands of them come in at night because they only come to land at night time. So once it's dark, you know, if you go outside, you hear, you know, thousands of birds and they're flying around your head and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite an experience. It really is. Yeah. My, uh, I'm doing a documentary right now on feral cat populations in Hawaii okay. and a huge, uh, impacted species. There's the Newell Shearwaters, okay. um, and the, the petrol populations over there, but I won't get too into it because I talk about it on pretty much every podcast, but the more and more you <laughs> learn about seabirds and the more and more you humanize their experience, they're amazing creatures. Um, but the, that's an experience that I'll never forget is standing out. I was on Kayana Point, which is the westernmost part of Oahu. So yeah. Basically, the most west you can be on land for a long period of time. So the sunset's crazy, but the second the sun goes down, all of a sudden the number of these shearwaters that come in at once—it's a beautiful yeah. sight. It's really cool, and yeah. they just come darting it, darting into their burrows. How they know which one is there theirs in the middle of the night is crazy to me. Yeah, but uh, they have so little um, dexterity on land. It's really oh, funny, like. Yeah, they're terrible on land, yeah. They're like crashing into the, the shrubbery around there. They're like missing their burrow and like yeah. whacking themselves on the side. It's really funny. Yeah, I've actually got, I'll see if the microphone will pick it up. So I've got a video of the sound of them. Um, oh, really? I'll see, if, I'll, see if the, um, I'll see if the microphone will pick it up. Let's have a look. Yeah, that would be amazing. Let's give it a go. Can you hear it? Yeah, wow. That's amazing. It's so loud. Yeah, it's pretty cool. How many so it must be thousands of them coming in. Yeah, there's yeah, there's there's thousands of them. Thousands of them. Um so yeah. To that, the point where like at least in Hawaii, I was I thought I was gonna get hit by I mean, yeah, I'm just we, standing we, there and they're coming over your shoulders and you know that it's Normally you'd have trust in nature and you're like, I know they're good at what they're doing, but then you see how many trees they're hitting and shrubs they're hitting. And you're like, I think something's going to whack me pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, we, we, um, we, so we go out at night to kind of, you know, to, <coughs> to show our guests them and to, you know, be surrounded by them. And pretty much everyone that comes out with us gets hit by one. Oh, really? They, yeah, yeah. They fly into your leg or they'll hit your arm or, you know, they, you, you have to kind of, so we take torches out that we put like a red filter over the front of them, mm-hmm. the front of the torch. So you can kind of see when they're coming and you, you have to move sometimes because they will just crash into your face. <laughs> you have to duck out the way of them because they're not, they're not the best at landing. No, definitely not. They have the cutest chicks in the world though, during when you shine the light into the burrow and you see those big puffy little fur balls. Yeah, they're really, really, really cool. It's really like half the experience of going to SCOMA as an overnight guest is to, is to kind of, you know, be surrounded by them. It's amazing. Brilliant. Somebody on the podcast was just saying they just discovered that if you shine UV light on puffin bills that they actually fluoresce, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Someone, someone on our recent workshop was saying, was saying about that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They think it has something to do with breeding. I also just um, watched a 
we have a show here that my parents watch every Sunday morning called Good Morning America. Yeah. And they had a story about it was an it was a small inhabited island off the coast of the UK, I think. I might be wrong. Um, but I guess to help with the puffin population, they have a lot of problem with the lights in the city. And so they just land on certain buildings and yep. they these these kids go around and actually like find them and pick them up and put them into boxes, bring them to the shelter. And then every week, every Sunday or something, they have this big release of all the puffins back into the world, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I just always thought they were beautiful birds that I'd love to go film. They're really cool. They are. How about otters? I've seen a lot of photos you have of otters and those have always been, I don't know. I've I've saw them at the zoo when I was a kid and I've always loved them because they seem like a really fun species. Um, like they're always playing with each other and swimming. Yeah. Where, where are you finding those? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I haven't actually, so the, the photos you would have seen of those were from a few years ago in Scotland. Um, so I've not photographed them really in a while uh, for quite some time now. So that would be a, a few years ago um, up in Scotland. It's really good for them. There's uh, the Isle of Mull, which is where I used to go. And um, there's a really good population there. And yeah, they're, they're, they're lovely. They're really, really, really cool. And actually, I do a um, uh, uh, we do a workshop at the British Wildlife Centre, uh, which is a place in the UK. Which um, so it's all captive. So it's kind of like a zoo, but they do a lot of um, they do a lot of work with, for conservation. So they're part of the wildcat um, uh, breeding program and all that kind of thing. And they have otters there, and so we get to go in the enclosure with them. And, oh, cool! And and then you can really see how um, you know how much fun they are. They kind of run up to kind of nip at your feet and you know nip at the sole of your shoe and then run away again. And they're squeaking at each other and they're very uh, yeah very amusing animals to watch. They're really cool. Yeah, I've always been dying to go see some of those giant otters, especially I think in the Amazon they get yeah. to be massive. And I think Planet Earth too had that one scene where it was like a giant otter standing off against a jaguar. And yeah, I would yeah, I would definitely like to see that. Yeah. If you could look back at your entire experience as a wildlife photographer, is there one experience that above all kind of stands out is that I know I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and I can't believe I'm looking at this right now. Um, I I quite often any really I mean I I never take I never take for granted that I've managed to have some success with this because it's not the easiest um, it's not the easiest industry to to be a part of um, full time. Uh, there are a lot of photographers that um, still do something else on the side, so it's not their you know it's not their main. Mm-hmm. Their main profession and there's nothing you know that's how it was for me to begin with as well you know there's nothing wrong with that um so there are very few uh full-time uh, wildlife photographers in the uk and i never take that for granted because um you know it enables me to see some amazing sites and i meet some really nice people and uh you know anytime i go anywhere really uh whether it's africa or i was in finland recently um anytime that i go somewhere and i'm sitting in front of a really cool animal or I'm looking at a really nice landscape I just think you know I, I actually can't believe that I'm doing this that you know right point, you know I sat I spent 13 years sat in a little room staring at a, a, a bank of 25 computer screens and <laughs> right. you know, staring at this amazing animal or this amazing site uh, so I mean in short there probably isn't any one particular instance that stands out if I'm honest um, uh, there have been so many cool things that I've seen um, 
I can't, I can't even think of one to pick out. If I'm totally honest with you, uh, I just, I just never take for granted the fact that I get to do this. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Yeah, I can imagine. What were you photographing in Finland? So Finland was for winter wildlife. So we were there mainly. Um, we, were look, we were looking for a golden eagle, uh, various species of owl, um, the uh, the grouse lek, uh, which sadly we didn't get to see. Uh, so yeah, various various things. Um, and again, I loved Finland. It was my first time there. Uh, it was very cold, very snowy. Reminded me of Yellowstone. Um, mm-hmm. And that was kind of it was actually while I was in Finland that I started to think actually quite like these kind of colder climates um so uh, yeah a really nice country and and huge huge country with a really small population so you just never see people which is really nice (laughs) yeah yeah i've been getting a lot of that anxiety of living around too many people recently i think i'm gonna make the move from urban to a little bit more rural pretty soon yeah, I think I think it's for, for for wildlife photographers. It's um, so you, you have to have that that kind of mixture. I think like being near a city is great, um, um, but most most wildlife photographers I know don't live in a big city, um, and I think that part of it is that kind of you 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 want that connection to the the great outdoors more so. Yeah. But if I couldn't live, you know, I couldn't live two hours from the nearest civilization because that would equally drive me crazy, you know. Yeah. hundred percent. Some release from it occasionally, I think. Yeah. Speaking of your love for Yellowstone, I just had a podcast a couple of weeks ago with, um, Jed Weingarten. I don't know if you know him, but, uh, he, he spends a lot of time in the Tibetan plateau in China. And he was explaining how it's essentially an exact mirror image of Yellowstone. So in the sense that Yellowstone has a lot of its um, climate changes due to elevation, the plateau has a lot of it due to its place relative to the equator. But in the sense that the landscape is very similar where we have bald eagles, they have golden eagles, where we have... um, mountain lions, they have snow leopards, where we have elk, they have a certain type of um, large horned, like I I don't exactly remember what it was, but he had essentially like 10 comparisons of one animal that we have to a different animal that they have. That was absolutely fascinating. It was essentially they're like mirror images of each other. Yeah. That's really Um, cool. Do you have a, a, favorite animal that you like photographing that's unexpected that I don't, like most people would expect you love the lions and leopards and puffins is there um, something that jumps out as something people wouldn't expect yeah so probably the easiest answer to that would be my photo last year in uh european wildlife talk the year of a pigeon um i had this kind of real desire um yeah it was part of the, it was an extension of the the you know the garden project but I kind of wanted the challenge of taking an interesting picture of a pigeon because they are massively overlooked um, mm-hmm. by photographers. <coughs> Excuse me. There are a few people that that, that do take occasional pictures of them, um, but on the whole, they're just not really photographed. So I wanted to take a creative, interesting photo of a pigeon. I set myself that kind of challenge. Um, which you know, thankfully, I seem to have pulled off, and so yeah, that would probably be the one. Um, I often say that the more common and boring the subject, the more memorable the photo, if it's a good photo, because mm. 
yeah, to remember a good photo of a, to really remember a good photo of a lion, it has to be beyond exceptional because there are so many good pictures of a lion. But to remember a good photo of a pigeon is a lot easier because there are very few exceptional photos of a pigeon. Right. Uh, so I often do think that the the more common the subject, the the more people will remember the photo for sure. I try not to dig too into specific photos because obviously it's an audio podcast, so people don't have reference yeah. points. But I want to talk about that pigeon photo for a second, yeah. where for those out there listening, it's essentially like you see the pigeon's head, but the rest of the body is moving its wings and the, it. it you could probably do a better job explaining it than I can, but um, I just had, can you explain what it is and also how you photograph that? Because I looked at it and I had no idea as to how you would begin to, obviously it has something to do with the shutter speed, but um, I, I, I just love to learn more about how you went about prepping for that photo. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's on my website. So if, if anyone who's listening wants to go and check it out, they can obviously see it on the website to then get a reference point for it. Um, it's um yeah so i've always thought that when so pigeons aren't the most graceful flyers so when they fly they make a lot of noise and you know they they're just not graceful mm-hmm. but they're because they've got white in their wings when they kind of flap their wings it makes interesting shapes in the sky you know it makes you you can see it with your eye interesting kind of flashes of white and so i've always thought that would potentially be an interesting picture um so it's something i've thought about for many years um it's always been kind of a back burner at the back of the mind and so when I when I was doing the garden project, that kind of came back to the forefront of my mind. It's like, okay, I need to try and do this. And so yeah, essentially what I did was I used a slow shutter speed of I think a fifth or a sixth of a second. Okay. So a very slow shutter speed to blur the movement of the wings, and then at the end of the exposure, so rear curtain sync, a pop of flash to freeze um, to sharp to you know, get the height, the head sharp basically. So, oh, okay. So the photo is a combination of a very slow shutter speed to capture the movement and a flash to freeze the motion at the end. Um, had I Got used the flash at the start of the exposure, then it would have looked like the, all the blur would have been in front of it and it wouldn't have worked. So you needed to get that sense of motion by having the flash at the end of the exposure. God, <laughs> I can tell you're a professional. Because I looked at it and I was, I could understand how you had the blur, but I had no idea how the head could have been yeah. so... Um, clearly in focus sure. if the bird was moving that much. I always wondered pigeons in general, like what it must be like to be a pigeon when your head is always constantly moving like this. Every step you take, it must be dizzying. Yeah, I mean, they're actually quite fun. So I've got, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's two that live in the, in the tree behind my garden and they come in a lot and they've actually got quite, you know, when you watch them, you know, I spent a lot of time watching them because I photograph them a lot and they've actually got quite fun personalities. You get like, other ones come in and then these two chase them off because there's a turf war going on. And, you know, mm. it's, 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 it's actually quite interesting. You, you take, you take some animals for granted, but when you sit and just watch them and watch the way they interact with each other and all that kind of thing, you realize that there's a lot more to most animals than, than people kind of think, especially, yeah, especially pigeons for sure. I actually stepped into a pigeon altercation once in New York city where I could see it was clearly mating season and there was this massive male pigeon, like the largest pigeon I've ever seen. And he was just harassing this group of females who clearly wanted nothing to do with him. And I just kind of felt like 
I was sitting there with my sister and we were looking and we were like, this pigeon is a prick. These guys don't want anything to do with it. So I stepped in and I like gave the, I gave the, the females an opportunity to get away and told the pigeon to screw off for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the animal kingdom is full of things like that. I'm sure. Yeah, for definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's a photo listeners should definitely check out that pigeon photo. It's gorgeous. I have a, I just moved to a new apartment and I'm looking at it now. We have this, um, very small deck, but there's one fat pigeon that hangs out here all day long and just is constantly pooping on our deck, but that's okay. <laughs> I do that. Uh, so I know we're getting a little bit closer here. I want to I have a few <laughs> rapid fire questions that I always ask every guest. Okay. Um, if there's one book that you would recommend or that you gift the most often, preferably focused in the wildlife category, whether it be stories or even a collection of photos what would you say um now you're gonna laugh at this um my 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 initial response to that would be that i'm not really into books um that being said the wildlife photographer of the year portfolio books are they're the they're you know they're collections of the greatest wildlife uh, wildlife photos ever taken so for sure the wildlife photographer of the year portfolios awesome uh how about documentary uh documentary has to be planet earth yeah um, yeah just um, like the first the first series yeah absolutely has to be planet earth incredible what can people expect from the next five years well anything is, is there anything like is there one bucket list item that you're really trying to focus on um sorry my siri just for some reason um that's okay i have in my house i now have the the iPhone, which li- listens for Hey Siri at all times, I have a Google Home and I have an Alexa. So uh, at any point in any conversation, one of them is thinking yeah. they're hearing something yeah. different. So yeah. I understand uh, the struggle. The next five years. So um, in, in, in short, um, I've got a couple of ideas for books. So I want to bring out um, a couple of books because that's something I haven't done yet. So that's kind of like a career kind of goal of mine is to is to bring out um, a book or, or more than one book actually and uh, ultimately I just you know I want to continue uh, taking photos that people like you know I, I take them for me but I want others to like them it's cool they do um, you know just just more traveling seeing more things meeting new you know new people um, more more of the same really and you know a few cool photos along the way that, that'll do me if you could summarize why you do what you do in a few sentences um, I do what I do because I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy, um, ultimately I'm, as I've said, I'm a creative person, so I enjoy creating things and I like the challenge of it and, um, I do it to, to ultimately, yeah, please myself. And if, if it pleases other people too, that's a bonus. If you could throw a billboard up on the highway that kind of disseminates one message into the world. What would you put on that billboard? Oh, these are big questions. Big questions. Yes, this is um, the last big one. It's this uh, one I've actually stolen from my favorite podcaster, or one of them is Tim Ferriss, and he asks okay. his guests at the every podcast. And yeah, I almost feel like I should preface people with this one because it, it it does put people on the spot a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a harder one, and I think his guests because he's popular. Yeah. It, they all know it's coming, so they're like ready for it. Whereas, yeah, yeah, yeah. because my podcast is a little more in its infancy stages, people haven't really prepped quite as much. I, I would say it, it's uh, it has to be a message about taking better care of the planet. Um, you know, there's there's 
so many so many animals are in decline and you know the although the message is, is put out there via various charities and organizations and books and that kind of thing um you know the more the better so it would be something along the lines of you know trying to raise as much awareness as possible and trying to make people act on thinking about what they're doing their impact on the environment and wildlife yeah i think that's uh something i stand by i think my billboard would be pretty much the same exact thing and where can people check you out obviously in the show notes i'll link to instagram and facebook and the website can people go on the guided tours? Is is that something that's available right now? Or are they all sold out? Yes. Well, there's there's lots of website has lots of workshops. I do one for people in the UK. I do one to ones as well. Uh, or, well, for people outside of the UK, I've travelled before for for private workshops. Um, yeah, work, workshops are always on there. Some are sold out. Some are not. Um, usually, they sell out quite quickly. So you know, if you want a book then do it soon. Um, But yeah, you know, I put my photos on, you know, all the usual um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, on all of them. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. That was a really interesting conversation. And I know you're a busy man, so I I do really appreciate it. And best of luck with all your travels. I know I'll be following along and um, waiting with bated breath at the next photo series to come out. So thanks again. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been good. Yeah, and to everybody else listening, until next time, be wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc. Please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.